Well, hello again. If you've been uh, joining a regular, you know that I've been, when I get a chance to preach, going through the book of Jonah, but I was able to finish that the last time I spoke. And my intention is to, uh, the next few times I get to preach, when I say few, probably two or three years, take us through the gospel of Mark. Um, just because I like to take my time and I only preach once in a while. But in between there, I want to take a little uh, side detour because whenever I'm not sure what to speak on, the Lord always takes me to the Psalms. And, and I just love the Psalms because they're so, so full and rich and there's a, they're like a gold mine that you can just keep digging and no matter how far you dig, the more that you find. So we're going to take a little uh, stop in Psalm chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please open to Psalm 16. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, or, or the book is better anyway, but the, the book was called Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and they made the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and then they made it again and made it again, and each one gets a little more weird. Um, but uh, we learn about Charlie and, and several kids who they're looking for that golden ticket that are in the chocolate bars, and if you are lucky enough to obtain one of those golden tickets, you get to tour Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. And so the day comes, and, and, and Charlie and several other kids get to go in, and they, they spend all day going through uh, the different parts of the candy factory and how they make it until they come to that one very secret, top-secret place where they make the everlasting gobstopper, right? Now, if you've been watching the movie or reading the book, you know that uh, uh, Wonka's biggest competitor was Slugworth, right? And Slugworth offered the kids... Uh, to be highly compensated if they could get him just one of those everlasting gobstoppers because then he could get the formula and he would put Willy Wonka out of business. So, of course, they get to the place where um, the everlasting gobstopper is and, and Char uh, Willy says, you know, the reason I made these are they're for kids with very little pocket money uh, because they never lose their flavor and they never get any smaller. Right? They, they last forever and ever, less the everlasting, the gobstopper part. Apparently, gob is a, is a slang word for your mouth. We call them jawbreakers. I remember when I was a kid going into the candy store, and they, they would have those glass containers with the silver lids on them. You ever see the ones on the counter that had, like, the, the softball-sized jawbreakers in? I look back, and I realize, I don't think anybody ever bought those because they literally would break your jaw and take you probably a year to eat. But they, so they were probably the same ones year after year in the candy store, so I'm glad I never bought one. But I always wanted to. But the idea was, you know, obviously, if you were a candy manufacturer, you wouldn't want to make an everlasting gobstopper because you'd put yourself out of business because no one would ever need to buy candy again, right? But I think the grace and the goodness of God is, is a lot like those everlasting gobstoppers, right? It never, it never runs out. It never gets any smaller, and it gets sweeter as the days go by. But sometimes we lose sight of God's goodness, don't we? We get distracted. Sometimes slugworth. Our enemy, the devil, he comes and tries to steal our joy. And when that happens, we can question um, the Lord. He can question his integrity and, and doubt his goodness. can lose confidence in his word. So sometimes, well, not sometimes, all the time, we need to keep our awareness, uh, especially in our struggles, on the goodness and the grace of God. We know this, but do we really trust it, that he doesn't give up on us, even when we fall short? He never abandons us. Even in death, as we, we just sang about, he never abandons us. <clears throat> he doesn't give up, and even when we die, he's still there. And also, it brings him pleasure to do good to his people. He loves us with an everlasting love. 
And, and Psalm 16 really just points out different aspects of that everlasting love. So there's four in particular that we're going to look at, and, and I'm copying off of Pastor Vince and I, you know, putting everything in alliteration here. So his everlasting protection, his everlasting provision, we're going to look at his everlasting presence and his everlasting promises. And hopefully by the time we're done, we'll see that God's promises and his presence and his goodness, they just keep getting sweeter as the days go by. So let's ask the Lord to just bless us with his presence this morning. Lord Jesus, I, I know you've overheard. And Lord, I know that wherever two or three are gathered in your name, you are here among us. But Lord, we just ask for your spirit to fall on each heart in a special way. Lord, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand everything that you have for us this morning. We pray this in your most precious name. Amen. Well, let's, uh, let's read the psalm. Look at it in, starting in verse 1. It says, A mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Man, fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. I, I need some of that because I run out. So let, let's, uh, let's dive in here. The first four verses here talk about God, uh, his, his protection, the everlasting protection of the Lord. In verse 1 it says, I take refuge in you, O God, preserve me. And that, that's the only real request that David makes in this entire psalm, is to preserve me, to, to make me your refuge. So it means he's going through a trial, a difficulty. Something is causing him to possibly take his eyes off of the Lord, and he's saying, Lord, preserve me. But it's, his tone is not despairing. His tone, there's a settledness to it. There's a joy attached to it. So he prays, Lord, preserve me. I, I skipped over there. It says, a mictum of David. I don't know exactly what that is, but I'm in good company, because most of the scholars I read, they don't really know what it is either, except to say that Psalms 56 through 60 are also called a mictum. Some think it's a musical term, some think it's more of a liturgical term. Um, people are uh, disputed about it, but there's two different definitions that people offer for what mictum means. Uh, one could be silence, and the idea is when you're going through a trial, sometimes the idea is just to remain silent and wait on God. And the other definition, oddly enough, is, is gold or golden. And of course, me, my, I couldn't help but think of the movies when I was a kid. It used to have that little slide come up, silence is golden, right? Shh. In other words, people came here to pay to see the movie, not to hear you. But I wish they would still show that <laughs> in the movies today, because now it's not just people talking, it's the phones ringing, making TikTok videos. It's like, I, I just, I just want to watch the movie. But silence is golden, especially when we're in these seasons of, of trial, because that's when God can speak. He can't speak if we're not listening. And if, we, if, if we're listening, we need to be quiet. So sometimes we need to appreciate the silence and wait for God to speak to us. 
But his only request is to preserve him. And then in, in verse 2, it's, he says this, I say to the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, anytime you see it all capitals like that in the scripture, it's, it's t- talking, the word is Jehovah or, or Yahweh. It's how God introduced himself or gave a title to himself when Moses asked, you know, who should I say sent me? He said, Yahweh, I am that I am, the becoming one. Whatever you need me to be, that's who I am. And of course, Jesus, many, many times in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John, when they question him, he says, I am. There's seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. And, and he was very intentional about referring himself to be the Almighty Jehovah God. But then anytime you see capital L, small O-R-D, that's the word Adonai, right? And Jehovah is to remind the people he's their covenant-keeping, covenant-making God. Adonai is more a, a, a sense of master, or authority. So David, and pronouns are important here. He says, I say to the Lord Jehovah Yahweh, you are my Lord, my master. Yahweh, you are my Adonai. Jehovah, you are my master. And I think he's really, he's telling God, but he's saying it to his own soul. And it's good to speak to your soul, especially when you speak the truth of God's word to your own soul. And so I ask you, is he your master? You can say it but do you live like it? And if you're not, we can always alter our course, right? There's a renewal every time that we go to him. Make him your master. And and, um, he's saying, I have no good apart from you, right? God alone provides my well-being, and there's no limit to that goodness. I I highly recommend, I, I... sometimes it's not good to, to listen to another preacher speak on a, a, a topic that you're about to speak on because I listened to John Piper and I was like, well, he did a better job than I could ever do. So I'm going to recommend later you go and look it up on YouTube, John Piper and his uh, message on Psalm 16. Don't compare me to him, but let God speak to you a second time, right? But John Piper, he calls himself a Christian hedonist. And the idea that we were intended to enjoy pleasure. It's just we look for pleasure in all the wrong places. If, I, if we put our pleasure in God and through God, and with God, God intends for us to be full of joy and to experience his pleasure and his delight, but it can only be found in him. And and that's what John Piper is so good and so exhilarating to listen to because I really believe he's found it. But I'll I'll read some of his words about this when he talks about verse um, verse 2. He says, um, I have no good apart from you. That's what God, no, I'm sorry, I skipped over the part. No, you are my authority and you are my good. I have other authorities, but none come close to you. You are over all other authorities, and any authority that's in my life gets their authority from you. But you are also my good. I have other goods in my life, but any good without God is not really good. If I taste nothing of you in any good this world offers, it isn't good, and I don't want it. Man, I wish that was my attitude. But too often I'm seeking after things that I think are good, but God doesn't necessarily want for me. And it's hard to know the difference, but if we follow what the psalmist says here, we have some advice on how to to keep God set before us. So let's keep going here. He says in verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are your excellent ones, and all your delight is in them, or all his delight is in them. And the excellent ones are not just Bill and Ted, right? They are all the people that God delights in. They are the people, the fellow members of the covenant. In the Old Testament, in David's time, when he's writing this, he's talking about Israel. And the why, why does he say that? He doesn't make it up, but right in Deuteronomy, you know, God says that you are, talking to Israel, you are my treasured possession. But then, of course, Peter, 
he quotes from that in his epistle in 1 Peter uh, 2.9, and he, he transfers that to, not transfers, but includes the church in that, the saints. The saints are not just people on stained glass windows who have halos and, and angels sing when they talk, right? The holy ones, the treasured ones, the, 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 the saints are you and I. Anyone who's put their faith in Jesus Christ, it's because that word means set apart. And all it means is we're set apart to God, we're set apart for God to be used by God. It's not because we are holy, it's because he is holy, and when he includes us in his family, we become holy. So when God, anytime you see the word saints, it's not some way that you, you, know, you put on your lawn or on your dashboard, it's talking about you. And you might not see yourself that way, but God certainly does. We need to raise our opinion and think of us ourselves the way that God thinks of us. I have no, um, where are my excellent ones? So, um, and there's no contradiction here, right? David says, I only delight myself in you and anything that's not from you, I don't want. Then he goes on to say, but now I delight myself in the people of God. Wait a minute, you just said you only delight yourself in God. Well, it's not a contradiction because God delights himself in his people. And God's people should be delighting themselves in God. So ipso facto or something else, if you delight yourself in God's people, you are delighting yourself in what God delights himself in and you are still delighted in God. Does that make sense? Even if it doesn't, that's what it says. <laughs> right? But how do you see God's people? Do you see church as a place that's just full of hypocrites? Welcome to the club. Number one hypocrite right here. And by hypocrite, I, I'm not saying because I'm not telling you to do something that I don't do, but I can't live up to what the scripture says that I'm supposed to do and how I'm supposed to behave. None of us can. So the fact that we fall short doesn't make us a hypocrite. It makes us sinners in need of a savior, it makes us children of God that are being sanctified and turned into his image and that he's not done with us yet. But what do you think about God's people? What do you think about yourself? Right? Don't think of yourself less than God thinks of you and he makes much of us. He sets his heart toward us. That's an amazing thing. But we need to be around the people of God and people who have been delighted in him. We need the people of God to fellowship. We need the people of God for comfort. We need the people of God for accountability. We need the people of God for instruction. We need the people of God to receive the love of God. And we need the people of God because sometimes we only experience the presence of God through his people. I know our tendency, I know mine is, but I know a lot of people are like that, that when we get sad or depressed or angry or, or some trial is happening, what do we do? We isolate ourselves. We stay away from God. Either we're mad at him or he, we think he's mad at us or we think we're not worthy to go to church. And that's, man, the devil, the enemy, he loves to isolate you because if he can get you alone, he can attack you more forcefully. That's when you really need the people of God the most is when you can't see who you are and when you can't see who God says you are and when you can't see his love for you. That's when you need to be here the most. Don't isolate, especially if you're having a bad day and you say, I'm not even gonna get out of bed this morning. That's the day you better because you might not be able to the next time. And David, he keeps going here. He says, I want no part of those who unwisely seek other gods. Because it says, look at verse four, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. And he uses that word intentionally because it's supposed to draw our hearts back to Genesis. Genesis chapter three, in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve, when they chose to rebel against God and listen to the serpent and, and choose another God, basically to choose their own happiness over what God says. They were literally in the garden of his delight, surrounded by his pleasures forevermore. And the serpent came along and said, you know, if God really loved you, 
he'd want you to eat this fruit from this tree. They could eat anything they wanted, but the serpent got them so focused on what God said they couldn't have, they thought that was the only thing that would make them happy. Don't we do that? Don't we focus on the things that God says, don't do that? We say, oh, that must be the good stuff. And what happens when you do it? You multiply sorrows. What's the opposite of delight? Sorrow. Now, he specifically said to Eve, I'm going to multiply your sorrow in childbirth, and that has been true ever since. But really, it's true for any of us who pursue anything that is not God. We multiply sorrows to ourselves, and that's really a foolish thing to do, isn't it? But yet, I think we're all guilty of it. David is saying here, I have found my treasure. The quest is over. I have found what I'm looking for, and only you can satisfy. And I'm reminded of Jesus in the Gospels, especially John chapter 6, where he, he gives a hard teaching. And he talks about his body, and, and, and we should eat of him. And, and it says a lot of his disciples, a lot of his followers left him that day. And he turns to the 12, and he says, will you also leave me? And I love Peter, right? Peter just says, Lord, who else are we going to go to? Only you have the words of eternal life. Man, Peter, and two seconds later, he was saying, get behind me, Satan. But Peter was passionate, but he knew truth. And see, I don't know about you, but I've had trials. I've had times where I've been disappointed by God. I've been disappointed in God. And, I, and I've thought that I've maybe been done with God or he was done with me. But I never went out and became an atheist. I never became a Buddhist. You know, I never went and, and started to study another religion because I know deep in my soul that there's no other eternal life. There's no other truth out there other than God's truth. I might not be able to accept it. I might not be able to live by it. I might be disappointed by it sometimes, but that's, that's my shortcomings, not his. But I know only he has the words of eternal life. And then David even goes further to say, not only am I not going to pursue other gods, but I'm not even going to let their names come on my lips, right? I, wanna, I don't want to do anything that, was, that would be considered reproachable. And the New Testament says we're to live lives that are beyond reproach. There are things that we can do that aren't necessarily sinful, but they could lead someone astray. You can be involved in activities or groups or things that you allow in front of your eyes that, that don't cause you to sin, but it might cause someone else to stumble. We need to be mindful of those things and to, to stay away, right? Because it's not just for us, it's for others. And then he talks about these blood offerings. And of course, the pagan cultures would, would, would drink the blood of, of sacrificed animals, sometimes even humans. And unfortunately, it's no different today. You look around the world and, and there's all kinds of uh, cultic practices that, that involve the blood, because why? They think if you drink the blood of something, you're getting its life power, right? There's no power in any blood other than the blood of Jesus Christ, and that's been shed for you. It's been shed once for all. Every drop was spilt, so we don't need to offer any sacrifices of blood anymore because his sacrifice has been made. David didn't know all that, but I do. Because the New Testament goes along with what's happening here. And I, I know that because as we keep going, we see David's looking down the circuits of time and he sees the, 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 the resurrected Christ even in this psalm. But so we had the um, protection of the Lord. And now look at verses 5 and 6. We'll see the everlasting provision of the Lord. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen out for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And that is all language related to Joshua and his conquest of the promised land. When you talk about allotment, you talk about portion, when you talk about the lines being fought out, it's talking about actual tracts of land. If you read in Joshua, as the last several chapters in the book, it goes through after Israel has defeated all their enemies, while well, God has defeated their enemies,
armies and he's used the armies of Israel to do it. He then gives them their portion in the promised land. Each tribe is given a certain area, geographic area, and then amongst the tribe, each clan is given a smaller area within that allotment. And then amongst that allotment, each individual family is given their portion. And it, it was a lifelong inheritance that, that they were to keep and to enjoy. Now, some forfeited it, but that was God's blessing. And the Israelites did nothing to earn it. God blessed them with it, just like we do nothing to earn our inheritance, but God blesses us with it. David talks about his uh, portion there. That's talking about his share, his occupancy, his possession. But the idea that you need to get here is it's present tense. David is not looking somewhere off into the future where he's going to inherit God's blessings. He's saying, my portion, my occupancy is for today. And it's, it's true for us as well that God's inheritance is for us right now. It's the present tense. And uh, God said, Moses, I am your portion and your inheritance. He actually made that claim to the entire tribe of Levi because they were the, the priestly tribe and they were supposed to dedicate themselves to the service of God and to his temple. And he said, I give you no portion in the land, but I am to be your, your portion. Now, some people might think, you know, they got ripped off. But if you realize what God is giving them, he, he gave them the best. He gave them himself, and he gives it to us too. God is supposed to be our portion. And also David said, my cup. In Psalm 23, he says, you know, you, you have anointed my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Did your cup runneth over? <laughs> Sometimes. Not often enough, though. But what is our cup? It's everything I need for life. Everything I need in this life is the Lord. Not the things of the Lord, but the Lord himself. Too often we want the blessor I'm sorry, the blessings, but not the blessor. We want the healer. I'm sorry, I keep reversing it. Just whatever I say, think the opposite. We want the healing and not the healer. We want the saving, but not the savior. We, we should want those things and desire those things. They're not wrong. But if we want those without wanting God, we're, we're doing it wrong. He says, take me, receive me, and I will give you these things as well. Right? And that, that's what David knew, that his cup was overflowing. When he talks about my lot, he's not talking about faith, faith not faith, fate, right? not chance, not fortune. Right? All the, the children of Israel, the way they got their lot is they, they, uh, their inheritance is they, they cast lots, which was something like dice or, or some kind of what seemed random. But it says God ordered and dictated and marked out how those lots would fall. And it's, it's the same with us. God orders our life. He sets it out for us, right? God, you govern my life. Again, this is Piper here. God doesn't just hold your lot. God is my lot. God decides my fortune, and God is my fortune. God allots my inheritance, and God is my inheritance. God governs my life, and God is my life. And it says it's a beautiful inheritance. Your lines fall out in pleasant places. That word means delightful. Isaiah talks about the land that is called Beulah, which is beautiful, right? And God, the Lord allots all these by his control. He determines the outcome. And you might think, you know, why me? Why is my lot in life so heavy or so hard? Why do they have it easy and I have it so hard? You ever said that? Maybe not out loud, but somewhere in your heart. Why do other people always get the breaks and I don't? I, God never said life was going to be fair. He doesn't order all your trials and go, okay, you're on number 17. If you get to 20, you're done. And you do look at some people and you go, why are they so blessed? And it feels like I'm cursed. God 
has drawn out the lines for your life. And I don't know why he chooses to bring suffering and hardship to some and not to others, but the question we need to stop asking is why? Instead, ask God, who? Who are you? Reveal yourself to me. Be my portion. Be my inheritance. Because I realize that if, if you have designed all of my days, you've designed this trial. You've designed me to go through it because there's no other way I'm going to learn what it is I have to learn except I go through this. And it doesn't have to be fair. But it's how he drew it out. And so we can surrender to it or we can run against it. But when we surrender to it, we find that he is there with us and that he will walk the road with us. Uh, many scholars that I've read, they consider Psalm 16 to possibly be the prayer that Jesus prayed on the night he was in Gethsemane. If you remember, the night before he was arrested and betrayed and, and taken to the, his trial and he was scourged and put on the cross and suffered and died, he spent a night supposed to be with his disciples praying, but they fell asleep. It says he went off by himself to pray, and he, he was in such agony that great drops of blood, sweat from his forehead dropped on the ground. And so many scholars think he's actually praying what's here in Psalm 16, amongst others. But when it says that he, um, indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance, when we, when we flip that and think, what was Jesus praying about that was his inheritance? Well, Hebrews 12 gives us a clue that says, it says there in Hebrews 12 too, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. What was the joy set before Jesus? <laughs> it's us. <laughs> it's reunifying us with the Father to bring all that are his home. That was the joy set before Jesus. We are his inheritance. We are his delight. But he doesn't just, <laughs> I feel like I'm one of those infomercials, but wait, there's more, right? In verses seven and eight, now we talk about the everlasting presence of the Lord. He doesn't just give us his provision. He gives us himself. Look what it says there. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Right? The Lord, it says, is my counselor. Pastors are okay. Teachers, Christian counselors, therapists, psychiatrists, all that is fine. But remember what it says in Isaiah that he is called wonderful counselor. And how does he counsel us? He counsels us through his word. Right? He doesn't often speak out loud but he does speak to me every time that I go to his word. And then it says, right, those night seasons. And it's, uh, my Bible says the night, but the word there is actually plural. And some versions translate it as the night seasons. What is a night season? Uh, I'm not sure, but the season we're in now is cold and dark and gray and barren. A lot like the Eagles 2023 season, but we're not going to talk about that. I think the Eagles have been in a night season for a while, but maybe you're in a night season right now. And it's hard, and it's cold, and it's dark, and you feel alone. Well, David was in those seasons, and I believe the Lord himself was in those seasons. It says Jesus spent many nights alone on the mountain where he would converse with God. If Jesus needed to go alone onto the mountain to pray, I certainly do. I think Sir Spurgeon had a great quote. He said, wise men see more with their eyes shut by night than fools see by day with their eyes wide open. How does he come to us at night? Because that's the time where our thoughts tend to catch up with us, right? I don't know how many of you go to bed and don't actually go to bed, right? Your mind just goes, shoo, 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 right? You're reviewing your day. Maybe you're going through some, oh, man, if I would have said this, that really would have taught her a lesson, right? If I would have done this, right? you're kind of reviewing what you could or could have, should have, would have done. But I also know that's the time where God 
will speak most clearly because that's when we're quiet. He needs us to be quiet. And our hearts start to speak, and sometimes we're overwhelmed with anxious thoughts, with worry, with fear, with doubt. And how does he counsel us? Well, for me, he reminds me of his word that I read earlier that he allows me to meditate upon. He brings calm. But I'll be honest, I've shared this before. Anxiety is not something that I struggled with most of my life. But the past three years, I've really had a battle with anxiety, in particular, anxiety that comes in the middle of the night. Right? I'm sound asleep, and you wake up with that... (gasps) For me, a lot of times it feels like I'm being buried alive or the walls are closing in and I I get this claustrophobic feeling. And there's so much in me that I'm trying to push that feeling away and I think that really is what causes the anxiety to to ratchet up even more. And so sometimes the only way I can get it to even subside a little bit is I have to get up out of bed and I have to pace a little bit. And if that doesn't work, I have to go outside. And it's not particularly enjoyable at this time of year to do that at 3 o'clock in the morning. But... Something about being outside and looking up at the night sky and seeing the stars and especially the moon, it reminds me of how small I am and how big he is. And that's not enough to take it away, but sometimes it helps it to subside just a bit. And I've prayed many times, God, just would you please just take this away? And, and he hasn't chosen to do that. But a few weeks ago, I think I had a breakthrough because it was one of those nights where I was thought I was sound asleep and I woke up with that... <gasps> You know, it's the middle of the night, it's silent, and all I could do in me was, oh, man, that that feeling is there. And I felt myself trying to resist it, trying to fight it, trying to keep it away. And I felt very clearly the Lord speak to my heart. And he said, stop resisting it. Let it come, but invite me in. And I I don't know why, (laughs) but just that subtle change in my thinking made all the difference. There's a peace that immediately came. And that's how the Spirit always identifies himself. There is peace. Didn't take it away, but able, being able to share it just helps so much. And so now that's what I try to do. Instead of trying to resist the bad feelings, I say, let them come. But Lord, be with me. I'm reminded in Matthew, he tells us, come to me all you are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Right? What is a yoke? A yoke is something they would put on beasts of burden and that they, that they would share the load, and, and that way not one animal was beaten, you know, being beaten up too bad, and that they could also carry more weight. And Jesus doesn't put us in a yoke so that we carry our share of the weight. No, when I look at it, I say, Jesus, you're the great big bull, and I'm just a stupid little donkey. Right? You're carrying all the weight, but why... Does he want us to yoke himself to him? Not, not so we carry the weight, but when you're yoked to someone, you have to walk in step with them. You have to be in alignment with the one that you're carrying the yoke with. And I think that's all Jesus ever intended. He doesn't want us to carry the weight. He wants us to give the weight to him, but he still wants us to carry the yoke. But you'll find that his yoke is easy, his burden is light, and that's where you find rest for your soul. That's where I found it. I, I hope that encourages you. But that's, I think, what David was talking about. And so when the night seasons come, allow the Lord to speak to your mind. When it runs wild, let the Lord bring your calm and your rest. And then in verse 8, he says, I set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. If the Lord is at your right hand, it means he's close by. He's not across the street. He's not in the next town over. He's not helping the president, and he'll get to you when he's not so busy. No, he's always available. That's the great thing about being omnipresent. 
He can be everywhere at the same time. So when you need him, if I need him at the same time, he's still there. And he said, at your right hand, that's also the honored place, right? It says Jesus currently sits at the right hand of the Father. He's at, he's at his disposal, but he's also at the place of honor. And how do we do that? How do we set Jesus that he's always at our disposal and he's always in the forefront of our mind in that honor position? I'm not really sure how, except I know that it's a choice of the will. It doesn't just occur. It's not willy-nilly. He doesn't show up and go, hey, I'm here. Maybe you'll see me in a couple of weeks. If we decide to determine to put Christ before us and to keep him at our right hand, he says he'll be there. We have to determine it with our mind. How do we do that? Well, in the morning, we've got to take him at his word. Get up and take him by the hand, or better yet, let him take you by the hand and keep him in that treasured, honored position. And i got to be honest, I'm not, I'm not just puffing smoke at him. I love the guy, but I don't know anybody who does it better than our pastor, Pastor Vince. How many times have you gone to him for counsel, and what does, he, what does he say? Keep your eyes on Jesus. When he preaches, when he says it, but that's how he lives his life. And I watch him, and he has trials, he has sorrows, he has troubles, but he keeps his eyes on Jesus, and he has a joy that i got to be honest, I don't possess most of the time. But he has it because he keeps Jesus constantly in front of his eyes. But what are the results if you do that? The results say, if, uh, I shall not be shaken. I shall not be easily moved. We live in a world that's being shifted, shaken all the time. It feels like sometimes the ground very, right beneath our feet is being eroded away. But when that ground slips away, you realize your feet are on the rock. And you will never be moved if your feet are planted firmly on Jesus. So we have uh, his presence, but look, we also have his promises. Verses 9 through 11 talk about some of his promises. In, in verse 9, he says, talking about his heart, his mind, and his body. Because the Lord is always before him, he says that my flesh also dwells secure, right? But there's a, there's a cost to that. Anytime you make a commitment, there will be a cost. There are things you have to give up. There's a lifestyle you may have to let go. There are things that you may have to say goodbye to or people you may have to say goodbye to. There's always a cost, but the Bible tells us that we should count the cost. Because if you count the cost, I guarantee you there is nothing, nothing that Jesus will ever ask you to give up that he is not going to replace with something better. It may not seem like it at the time. And it may be months or even years before you see the benefit of, God, why did you let that happen or why did you not let that happen? And we might not know it today, but I guarantee you, God will never ask you to give up something that he's not going to replace with something far better. Guaranteed. And if not this life, this life is a breath. We have eternity to spend with him, but there is a cost. But the promise is, I mean, the problem is we forfeit our happiness because we think our happiness is our ultimate goal. God is not primarily concerned with our happiness. God's primary concern is our holiness. God desires us to desire him. He gives us himself and he wants us to desire him. And if we desire him and we place him in front of us, we are happy as a result. So God is desirous of our happiness, but he knows it can't be found in anything other than him. So why am I so bound and determined to go find it elsewhere? I don't know. Do you struggle with that as well, or is it just me? But if we start to realize that my holiness is his concern, that perhaps we should focus on becoming like him, and then we can experience the fullness of the joy 
that he talks about. There's peace and security that comes with it. And he says, David, in verse 9, his whole being rejoices. Another way to translate that, he says, my glory shouts out in praise. And I will tell you that when things are good and I'm in a good mood, I'll sing along to the radio in the car. Not in front of anybody else, but I'll sing along. That's how I know I can be in a good mood, but it doesn't happen often enough. That's another thing, Pastor Vince. I'd never, ever run into him when he's not singing, humming, or going through some song. And sometimes you do it, not because you are happy, but because after you sing, it makes you happier. When we sing praises to God, it changes our attitude. And perhaps we should all try to employ that more often. So then in verse 10, he talked about his heart, mind, and body. In verse 10, he talks about his soul. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. In the Old Testament, that word Sheol, it wasn't necessarily a direct... um, correlation to our picture of hell that was more defined in the New Testament by Jesus himself, but this idea of the grave or the pit or the place of the dead. But even though they didn't have a full picture of the afterlife of being with the Messiah in heaven, there was in the Jewish mind in, in, you know, 2,000 years ago, this idea that the grave was not final, right? And that's what David is saying here. You are not going to leave me in the grave. But he goes beyond that, and that's why those verses we read earlier from the book of Acts, both Peter and Paul in the book of Acts quote directly from Psalm 16.10, and when they're declaring that the resurrection proves that Jesus is the Messiah, right? That's the proof that God accepted his sacrifice. His resurrection proves that he conquered sin, he conquered death. And David was writing this a thousand years before it happened about not himself, but about the Messiah. And where did he get that confidence from? Well, back in 1 Chronicles, God makes a direct promise to David, and he says, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. David realizes it's not him, but someone's going to come from his line who will be the anointed one, who will be the Messiah, who will, the Lord will never let come to see destruction or corruption. David was a prophet as well as a king, and he was able to look down the circuits of time through the power of the Holy Spirit and be able to announce that, and that's why uh, Peter and Paul make reference to that. And what's the result of that? Because David, you know, and that's what even Peter said, like, look, we know where David's tomb is. It's there. It's been there for a thousand years. Don't tell me he hasn't seen corruption. His skin and his bones have, have gone away. But he's not, God isn't talking about that. He's talking about the Messiah, and Jesus is that Messiah. And because Jesus defeated death, we have defeated death. If we put our faith in Jesus, we defeat death. God doesn't abandon us even in death. He is with us. And what's it say in verse 11? You make known to me the path of life. What's the opposite of death? Life. And he makes it known to us. Not he will make it known to us. It is known to us right now. We have conquered death. You and I sit here right now and death has no hold on us. The grave has no right to us. This life is going to come to an end. And if you are a follower of Christ, it will continue for all eternity with him in heaven. If you are not a follower of Christ, if you reject him and his word, the Bible says that at the end of this life, you also will live in eternity, but you'll be separated from him forever. And we call that hell. It's a place of eternal torment and suffering. And we need to choose now. But we don't have to fear death because Jesus conquered it. And because he conquered it, we conquered it. And the path of life is our present 
gift. It's our present reality. It starts now. We don't have to wait till we die to experience forever eternal life. Again, I'm going to quote from Piper, right? He says, your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Piper says this, is anything fuller than full? No. Is anything longer than forever? No. So nobody can ever offer you anything better. Fullness means completely satisfying, and forevermore means these pleasures never stop. If you don't think God can make you happy forever, then you don't know God. Do I know him? Do I know him like this? Unfortunately, my view of the afterlife is way too informed by Tom and Jerry and Bugs Bunny cartoons. And this idea that the afterlife is just sitting on a cloud, playing a harp with a robe and wings, jumping around, that's not good theology. That's good cartoonology, but it's not good theology. He says there'll be pleasures forevermore. And my God, boy, he can think of some pleasures. The other day, I woke up early enough to actually catch the, the part of the sunrise. And I couldn't believe how beautiful that gray, cloudy sky was when the orange started to appear. And I thought, God, that is, you are so good because there's no other reason to put that there than for my delight and my enjoyment. God, you are good, and you will never run out of good ideas. So it's not about sitting around on clouds. It's so much better. It's better than an everlasting gobstopper because God's goodness and his pleasure and his inheritance and his presence and his promises, they never lose their flavor, and they never shrink. They only get sweeter. The other thing we need to know is God is not against pleasure. He delights in our pleasure. He just knows that our pleasure only comes in and through himself. Pleasures forevermore reminds me of Psalms 36 where it says, I will drink from the river of your delights. Right? God's gift of life is the gift of himself. It's his presence. Another Psalm 84 says, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. He promises more than one day. He promises us eternity in his home and in his presence. It's not in the future. It starts now. It says he tabernacles. He dwells with us right now. So if we have a God that we can trust for our future, we have a God that we can trust with our right now. We need to, we need to fight for this, folks. It doesn't occur naturally. I don't know about you, but I do not experience fullness of joy on a day-in, day-out basis. But I do sometimes. And those moments make me believe that there's more available. If I set the Lord before me, that I can enjoy more of his fullness of joy. But we have to fight for it. We live in an embattled state, and it's going to get worse. I don't ever expect to attain fully what I will experience in heaven, in eternity, with him. I don't expect to get it now, but I'm going to fight, with it until my, fight for it until my last breath. There can be no coasting. If you coast, you die. So we will fight on. I set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will never be shaken. Amen? Amen. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that David not only experienced it and believed it, but he lived it. Lord, thank you that you live and breathe and that you are available to us. We should have you ever at our right hand and set you ever before us. God, it's hard to do in this life, but it is possible. Lord, help us to set our minds and set our will on you. Lord God, thank you that your spirit gives us the power to resist, to give us the power to fight when we don't have it ourselves. Thank you for the people of God. Help us to delight ourselves in God's people. But Lord, help us to light ourselves in you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.